0: couple of very good questions. Uh, The first question is this. Uh, It's well and good to criticize uh, Sunday school teaching as having been excessively moralistic through all the years, but how in the world are you going to give all this sort of thing to children? How can you... uh, get them to understand complicated diagrams with E and T1 and T to the nth power and uh, explain to them what's uh, moralistic and what isn't and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, Well, uh, yeah, it it isn't always uh, the easiest thing in the world, but uh, it can be done. Um, uh, I I had the joy one time of writing Vacation Bible School materials for the... uh, uh, Great Commission publications, uh, um, and uh, I, I tried my hand at it, uh, telling all the different stories you know in a Christological uh, setting. Now, De Graff's book, uh, 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 "Promise," what, what's the name of it? "Promise and De- Promise and Deliverance." Uh, there is a book that was originally written—I'll admit—for later, for more for the high school age, but it was written for young people in Holland. Uh, written by a pastor in Holland uh, telling the Bible stories in a Christological perspective uh, for young people. And uh, that's a very useful book for seeing how stories can be told pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Now, as you reduce, you know, to earlier and earlier ages, uh, of course, uh, you also become more selective uh, as you're trying to get stories for for very young children. uh, Obviously... You have to bear in mind uh, their brief attention span. Uh, You have to bear in mind uh, uh, what they can be brought to understand. And don't forget, just to tell them stories as stories is is quite okay. Uh, You can tell them the story and uh, not tag a a moral line onto it. Just tell them the story and let the Bible story become part of their information and understanding because they'll need to know that later. And, you know, if you go through uh, a book uh, like Marion Skolin's book of Bible stories, which is well-adapted for very young people, and then uh, uh, the... uh, Uh, Mrs. Voss, uh, Catherine Voss's uh, Bible story, and there are other Bible story books that are very well done, some published by Wedge uh, uh, publishers uh, in Canada, which are translations of uh, very good Bible story books that were written in Holland. Uh, You see, there has been more, uh, a broader understanding of biblical theology, I think, in Holland than anywhere else. And there was a period when it was uh, really... um, a very prominent, uh, had a very prominent place in, uh, in Dutch preaching. Uh, the uh, uh, Klaus Skilder, uh, some of you uh, may have read his trilogy on uh, Christ's uh, sufferings, uh, a trilogy that is filled with the perspective of biblical theology. And uh, uh, there were other preachers uh, in Skilder's day that were also preaching in this way. Now, unfortunately, that tradition has largely died out in Holland. It still exists, but it it isn't as prominent as it once was. And some of the Sunday school stories, as they were told in Holland, do uh, reflect this. Uh, So uh, when you're dealing with real little children, obviously uh, you want to tell them the stories about Jesus so they'll understand them where Jesus is presented directly. And then you begin to tell them Old Testament stories and, if necessary, just as stories. But certainly with uh, the main point always clear, that it's God who is caring for his people. See, uh, remember, you're telling them about the Lord, basically, and you're telling them that long ago God cared for his people, and now we see how God cares for us in that he sent his own son to be our savior. You don't always have to make all the elaborate connections, but at least you can get the basic structure in their mind uh, without uh, giving them false leads, without telling them that, you ought you know you ought to be as what uh, as Samson was <laughs> have long hair uh, okay <laughs> have uh, have long hair and don't drink that, that's the best we can do with Samson on a moralistic <laughs> <coughs> well um, the other question that I was asked uh, is also an excellent question, and uh, that is um, Oh, one more point on the lesson. Uh, Great Commission publications in the materials that they've put out for Sunday school, they have tried to be loyal to this perspective. So look at their stuff. Look at what they've written for the younger ages. And I think you'll see that uh, it does not betray this perspective. I mean, it doesn't violate this perspective. It takes account of it. And uh, and you you people you can devise better ways of doing this uh, once you understand the perspective yourself. Yeah, it's a problem sometimes uh, to, to present any story to children. <laughs> you know, a lot of times uh, people think that just because uh, they've seen nice pictures of Jesus as a shepherd carrying a lamb or something, that uh, little children are going to just love the shepherd image. Well, I don't think there's a harder image in the whole Bible to present to little tiny children than shepherd. You know, they've never seen one. Or in the city, in the urban setting, who's seen a shepherd? And if a kid ever did have a, see a lamb, it probably scared the life out of the kid. You know, the, the thing gave a squawk. A, remember when one of our kids first encountered a lamb, uh, he was uh, uh, paralyzed with fear. So. Man, Maybe he wasn't a very bold kid. I don't know. But but you see, you really, there are efforts to deal with this. And, and a lot of times there are stories that are not appropriate to tell the children yet. They need to have a better uh, uh, understanding to, to, to grasp it. Okay. Uh, now, the second question is this. Um, it's all well and good to say that uh, uh, you have this history of uh, revelation going forward and you want to respect it and show its significance and so on. Uh, but isn't there a danger of jumping to Christ uh, too quickly without taking uh, advantage of the, uh, uh, of the real history of redemption? Um, which is... Uh, I guess you could diagram that too, but now I need another overlay with another color or something because that's as though... Uh, you go up to Christ, okay, and then you go right back down this way without taking account of, uh, of what lies in between. Uh, in other words, uh, yes, there's a, there's a real danger that you can uh, develop a Christocentric message but not take seriously the actual setting in history of the passage that you're presenting. That's a—it's a real danger, and it, it's a danger that has often uh, uh, been evident. But um, still, uh, my plea is: recognize the importance of the of the vividness, of the concreteness, of the uh, of the understanding that comes from penetration into the passage itself, in its setting you must exegete fairly you must understand the passage you must hear what it's saying but then all i'm saying is yes look at the immediate context but don't ignore the ultimate context see the, the, there there are uh, another diagram entirely would be concentric circles with with wider ranges of context and a text has an immediate context in the, the books of Samuel, we will say, but then it has a broader context in the historical narratives of Israel and yet a still broader context in the whole prophetic perspective of the Old Testament, but its ultimate context is the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so what I'm pleading for is don't forget the ultimate context. Now, obviously, you violate... Uh, hermeneutics, you violate sound scriptural exegesis if you jump right from the text to the ultimate context without paying any attention to what intervenes. Uh, and the uh, uh, Maybe I could figure out better ways of illustrating that with this diagram, but you, you, you want to preach Christ to the people, and you just go uh, to Christ and just see the event in the light of Christ as sort of running the line of topology backwards, uh, and you ignore all this, which you, you can't do. Uh, and When I draw the line of topology this way, I mean that uh, this is a type because of this. And I'm uh, calling for the integrity of that whole triangle, if you want to express it that way. Okay, um, now a word about the bottom arrow here. Uh, Incidentally, somebody suggested that this arrow ought to have the head on the other end. Uh, that, that uh, we're talking about going from the event in symbolism to the truth and that moralism goes from the event to the truth as it was in the Old Testament then applies that truth right here. I think that's right. I think the arrowhead ought to be on the other end, be <laughs> uh, more consistent with the diagram. Okay, now we look at this allegory uh, line down here. And what's that? Well, uh, You'll notice in your bibliography, uh, I have uh, referred to the article uh, that in, um, uh, on uh, allegory uh, that is found in the, um, oh, where is it here? Did it get, yeah, uh, Buxell, Buxell. Yeah, it should be an umlaut over that U too, but uh, Buxell uh, has the article allegoreo in uh, Kittle which uh, got spelled like kettle, but um, that's all right. Uh, it's uh, E-L, not L-E, but all right. Um, th- th- this uh, th- this is a good article on allegory uh, that's well worth reading. Unfortunately, the word allegory has been used in so many different senses that perhaps it's unwise to use it at all. Uh, but, you know, Paul says in Galatians which things are an allegory when he talks about Hagar and the relation of uh, uh, Hagar to Ishmael and the relation our relation to uh, Christ rather than to Ishmael and to Hagar. And he says these things are an allegory. Now, I think that the force of allegory there, uh, in the, the more technical language that we now try to use, uh, I think when Paul says allegory there, what we're to understand is type. Uh, I don't think he means that it's an arbitrary connection. I think he means it is a, a connection that can be grounded in the history of Revelation. And I'd be glad to talk about that because a lot of people say that Paul's exegesis is just rabbinical and that <clears throat> that you could never uh, uh, get there by any method but by arbitrary and uh, invalid uh, hermeneutical principles. Uh, and I, I would dispute that. I think uh, you can show... Uh, typological significance. But when I say allegory, I don't mean what Paul means by that term in Galatians. Uh, I mean what we usually mean when we use allegory. Uh, I mean making arbitrary connections. Uh, the famous writings of origin uh, are uh, full of allegory. Uh, Philo allegorized the Old Testament to read Greek, philosophy, Greek philosophical concepts in the Old Testament. Now, he didn't do it by any method that could be grounded in the character of the text itself. He just arbitrarily assigned meanings to different parts of the text uh, that caught his fancy. And by the allegorical method, I mean by that uh, absolutely arbitrary connections where the passage, the meaning of the passage itself is not developed. You don't really interpret the significance of the passage, but you just assign a meaning to it uh, for your own purposes. Uh, uh, one of the famous ones uh, that Origen did... Uh, he spoke of uh, Abraham's servants, uh, the abraham 's servants, the three hundred and eighteen servants of Abraham when he went to fight uh, the ten kings you know Keder Laomer, uh, and you will recall that uh, when he says well, three hundred and eighteen servants, you may not recall the number, but that 's what it was uh, but in Greek uh, there would be a, a, the letter uh, tau would be in the middle of the number for three hundred and eighteen. And so Origen said that that's the cross and that therefore uh, the cross is being presented in that passage of the Old Testament. Well, you see, it's that kind of nonsense that has turned people off completely on allegory because you can make anything connect with anything. And, uh, you know, I would... Defy you, uh, even practically as a parlor game, uh, to name two things that another person cannot connect. Uh, You might play that for a while. (laughs) Uh, Because the way our minds are put together, (laughs) we're always trying desperately to make connections. And you get a lot of practice here in seminary classrooms trying to make sense out of what professors are saying. And uh, after a while, uh, you can connect anything with anything, you see. You, you, you get pretty good at it. And uh, uh, the, allegory, the allegorical method of interpretation has had great favor among imaginative preachers all through the ages because they can always come up with uh, cute explanations of things. Uh, <clears throat> There's a, a book, uh, a, a wonderful textbook on preaching uh, by a man named Hoekstra uh, called Reformed Homiletics. Uh, unfortunately, it was never translated from the Dutch language. But uh, in, that, uh, in that book, he tells about a preacher who preached a sermon on the text and a chair. Now, uh, that's in uh, the account where the uh, woman prepares an upper room for the prophet Elisha, you know, and she furnishes the upper chamber with a bed and a table, a lamp, and a chair. And so he takes uh, from that passage uh, the phrase, and the chair, and he develops a wonderful sermon on that uh, text. Uh, uh, Here is the... uh, 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 chair, the rocking chair of the grandmother in the home, and uh, we see that rocking chair and all that it means to us. Uh, uh, here is the empty chair of the prodigal son who's gone wandering away from the home, and uh, alas, there's the empty chair at the table, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and etc. Uh, you, you see, there's no limit to that kind of preaching. And uh, even some good preachers did it uh, on occasion. Clarence McCartney uh, once in a while was guilty of that. The famous uh, preacher out in uh, Pittsburgh, you know, once in a while, he sort of used this method you know that you uh, pick up a text <laughs> and turn it around. you know it's obvious you have nothing up your sleeve that 's all you 've got, and uh, now you 're going to show people that you can talk for twenty five animated minutes with nothing more to go on. You oh. Well, uh, sure, McCartney could do it. You could have given him any word, and he could have made a nice address out of it. Uh, But uh, uh, you see, that allegorical method, what that really means is you go back to the Old Testament, and you take anything there, and anything that it happens to suggest in your mind uh, will do. And so you hop right over to the the modern application of whatever it happened to be, uh, Uh, and uh, you know the the sky's uh, a limit Uh, returning Israelites will come as doves to their windows which is a clear uh, reference to um, air travel you know that uh, uh, (coughs) well that's obvious enough okay Um, now let's um, I know you have a lot more questions but let, let me move on a bit now I, I want to do a couple, of th- well yes, first of all I want to give you a little overview to get you going on uh, preaching Christ from the Psalms, uh, preaching Christ in uh, covenantal praise. After I've spoken about this, I want to give you a more detailed outline on preaching Christ from the Psalms and say a little bit more of a more technical character. But first of all, I want to give you a little overview of this. This follows along with the general outline that I first distributed. Incidentally, there are more of the outlines that were distributed at the front of the table. So if you didn't get one, pick one up as you leave. Preaching Christ in the Praises uh, of Scripture. Now, uh, first of all, uh, may I call your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 31 uh, and verse... uh, 19, it's interesting that uh, God who gave Moses uh, the law on the tablets of stone also gave Moses a song. Um, Deuteronomy thirty-one nineteen. Now therefore, write ye this song for you, and teach thou it the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. Now, that's an amazing... Uh, statement, isn't it? Uh, Now, you read the song in Deuteronomy 32, and you see it's a song, uh, a psalm, that proclaims the greatness of God, the rock of Israel, and a psalm which confesses the sin of Israel, their hardness of heart, and uh, the way in which uh, they were uh, not grateful to God's uh, great compassion and goodness toward them. Now, the significant thing is that that psalm is described as having been given to Moses by God as part of God's witness. Now, you see, the tablets of stone were God's witness to Israel. Uh, the term eduth witness, is applied to the tablets of stone. And they're called the tablets of the testimony, which, of course, testimony is just an old-fashioned word for witness. They're the tablets of witness. And the Ark of the Covenant is called the Ark of, of Witness, uh, the Ark of the Testimony because it contains the stone tablets of witness. But you see, it's not only the law that's the witness of God to Israel. Also, the, the, the poetry is the witness of God to Israel. So that we're not to think that the law is God's word to us, and then the Psalms are our word to God. Now, to be sure, there is in worship our address to God, yes. But the point is, God inspires not only the word that he speaks, but he inspires also the response that is given. So the song of Moses also becomes God's witness to Israel. God bears witness by that song. Now, it's, it's a very beautiful thought, isn't it? Uh, God puts his witness on tablets of stone for permanence. But there's another way to make his witness permanent. <laughs> Uh, not to put it on tablets of stone, but to put it on the lips of his people. And how do you get words on the lips of people? Well, of course, you set them to music. Uh, you, you sing them. Uh, because uh, all people in all time have always had songs. And uh, God's people are given songs of praise to God so that they might utter with their lips uh, the, the words that God wants them to remember so that Israel would really be bearing witness against themselves as they sing the songs that God has given to them. Now, I would like to say, first of all, that uh, we have presented in the Psalms Jesus Christ. He's presented as the singing Christ. He is the Lord who sings the great songs of Israel. He sings them first as the song in the midst of the congregation. And here I would direct your attention to the book of Hebrews and the second chapter. And there we're told uh, that in the midst of the congregation uh, will I sing thy praise. And that reference is made to Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll read from verse 11 of Hebrews 2. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I sing thy praise. Now, you see, it's interesting that uh, the quotation there is from Psalm 22, verse 22. Now, we all recognize that the first verse of that psalm is messianic. There Jesus says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you know, in the gospel records, we're told that Jesus cried that out on the cross. We're even given the words in Aramaic uh, that we might know the very syllables that Jesus uttered on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But now here, the author of Hebrews Uh, quotes for us not the first verse of Psalm 22, but the 22nd verse of Psalm 22, and says that uh, that verse, which uh, says uh, that in the midst of the congregation will I sing thy praise, that that verse is the verse of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the singer of that psalm. Now, of course, we know that Jesus did sing the psalms uh, in the, the company of the congregation of the people of God, we're told, for example, that uh, in the upper room before they went out to the Mount of Olives, they sang a hymn. Uh, presumably, they sang uh, uh, the part of the Psalms that was customarily sung at the Passover season, uh, including Psalm 118, uh, the Psalms of what was called the Great Hallel. And uh, Jesus uh, uh, sang that song, uh, that song, that Psalm uh, in the midst of uh, his people, in the midst of the congregation. Uh, He no doubt sang songs also in uh, synagogue services when psalms were used. Uh, Jesus uh, sang the psalms. But you see, the author of Hebrews is telling us more than that. He's telling us that Jesus is really uh, the one who is speaking in Psalm 22. See, that Jesus isn't just quoting the psalm, but the psalm is prophetic. The psalm is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus of course when he says Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani uh, he is uh, in one sense quoting the psalm but in a deeper sense he is bringing the psalm to realization for uh, he it is of whom the psalmist is speaking. Uh, David crying out in the psalm in the midst of his own affliction is because in spite of the Holy Spirit speaking prophetically. And therefore, what he says in Psalm 22 uh, applies to the Messiah. Now, the song of Jesus Christ in the midst of the congregation is, of course, the song of the suffering servant. Jesus cries out from the depths, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's uh, that's a tremendous uh, matter for reflection. Um, You see, friends... um, You don't really appreciate that psalm until you understand what it means that it is the psalm of Jesus, Uh, that uh, the forsakenness that's being described there is the forsakenness of the Son of God. Now, to be sure, David on occasion felt forsaken, and I dare say you have felt forsaken. And I dare say, you have cried out at certain times in your life. Why? Why? We are all confronted at one time or other and more or less uh, overwhelmingly with the reality of evil in this world. And we cry out, why should God permit it to happen? Uh, And particularly as it affects our own lives. Why? Now, when you reflect that Jesus Christ on the cross cries out, why? And you reflect that there's nothing that's happened to us that really is undeserved. We're sinners. We deserve only God's judgment. When Jesus was told about the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, uh, he didn't talk about all these poor innocent victims. He said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's a hard word to receive, you see. But it it, uh, reflects on the fact that uh, as sinners, we deserve not blessing, but judgment. And yet, here's Jesus, who does not deserve judgment, but who receives judgment. Here's the one who is faithful. And God God in the Old Testament says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But here he forsakes the only one who deserves not to be forsaken. So there's the great... If you talk about the mystery of evil, the mystery of suffering, uh, there's nothing, of course, that can compare to the mystery of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Well, you say, didn't Jesus know why he was dying? Of course he did. He said, the Son of Man has come to give his life a ransom for many. He knew that. But nevertheless, in the agony of being made sin for us who knew no sin, Jesus cannot but cry out why. Uh, Now... If you don't find comfort in that, I would suggest that you meditate about it. There is a comfort that I find difficult to describe. But there is immense comfort in knowing that Jesus, who did not deserve to be forsaken, was forsaken for us. And he cried, why? In order that we might not need to cry, why? Uh, Job's cry, why, in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Really finds its answer in the cry of Jesus. Well, think about that. Uh, he is the suffering servant, but he's also the triumphant servant who sings in verse 22. Now, <clears throat> for the sake of uh, time, I want to uh, want you to turn with me and look for a moment at Psalm 22. I just want to call your attention to the structure of this psalm. Klaus Westermann, uh, an Old Testament scholar, uh, has a book about the psalm, uh, about the psalms, uh, called uh, the Praises of Israel, and it's a, it's a very fine book. He points out in that book uh, that. This psalm is one of the category of psalms that we speak of as the psalms of the lament of the individual. Now, some of you have studied uh, the psalms and some of you have not, but uh, uh, there have been many uh, systems of categorizing the psalms, but all the systems would agree that there's a division between the I psalms in the first person singular and the we psalms in the first person plural. And this is an I psalm, the individual sufferer, you know. And uh, in these psalms, you often have just the structure that is shown in Psalm 22. Uh, first, there comes the cry, the cry of abandonment. And then there develops the lament. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou answerest not in the night season, uh, but am not silent. So you get a cry, you get a lament. And then you get a confession of trust. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not put to shame. And then after that confession of trust, the lament picks up again. And characteristic of the lamentation in these psalms is the fact that they keep referring to I, thou, and they. I am a worm and no man. Uh, They, my enemies, are around me like bulls and lions and uh, uh, wild uh, dogs. And thou, where are you, O Lord? (laughs) See, I am abandoned. Lord, you are gone. And they, my enemies, are all around me persecuting me. So that's what you have in this lament. And then after that lament, you get another confession of trust. Verse 9, but thou art he that took me out of the womb, thou didst make me to trust in my mother's breast, and so on, through 9 and 10. And then the lament continues again. And then after the lamentation and the confessions of trust, uh, you have the cry for deliverance. Uh, You see that, for example, in verse 19. But be not thou far off, O Lord, O thou my succor, uh, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the dog, my darling from the power of from the sword. My darling from the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth. And uh, that's anticipated by an earlier cry of that sort. But that's the element that you have, you see. Uh, the, the cry initially, the confession of trust, the lament, and then the cry for salvation. Save me, deliver me. And notice then that after that cry of salvation, there's the assurance of being heard which is uh, the end of verse 21. Yes, from the horns of the wild oxen you have answered me. There you see the, the psalmist has the assurance that he's been heard. And after that assurance of being heard, uh, there comes uh, the vow of praise. Uh, in the, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the assembly, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee. Now, uh, That implies, of course, a whole structure behind it, that there was the thank-offering of praise in Israel, and someone in affliction would make a vow to God uh, saying, Lord, if you will deliver me, then I will come and praise you. Uh, remember, even Jacob makes such a vow in Bethel, that Lord, if you, if you bring me back home again after this, then I'm going to praise you and adore you, etc. And well, the, the vow, you, the, the afflicted person would vow to God that if he was delivered, then he would praise him. And then he would come and bring a thank offering into God's courts and praise God in the midst of the assembly of the worshiping congregation. Now, I'm not saying that every time such a vow is referred to in the Psalms, uh, a, a literal uh, performance of the sacrifice of praise is in view. Uh, I think it often is, but whether or not the literal performance is in view, the concept is in view. Uh, Lord, uh, I, I make my vow to you. I know you're going to hear me, and therefore, because I know you're going to hear me, you know that I'm going to be able to come in with my thank offering of praise and uh, glorify you. Now, you'll find that uh, in psalms of this sort, uh, this vow of praise uh, is often uh, to be seen. For example, uh, in Psalm uh, 116, verses 13 and 14, I will take the cup of salvation, I call upon the name of the Lord, I will pay my vows unto the Lord, yes, in the presence of all his people. You see, you come into the courts of the Lord in the presence of all his people, and you uh, pay your vow. Now, Psalm 22, verse 22, is that vow of praise in Psalm 22. Then after that vow of praise, there comes the doxology. That God is to be adored, he's to be praised. The psalmist, as it were, begins the praise now that he's going to make in the great day when God has delivered him. And the last part of this Psalm 22 uh, comes with the great shout, He has done it. It will be declared to a people that shall be born that he has done it. Now notice that the psalm is written before the psalmist has been delivered uh, from uh, the dreadful plight that he's in. (laughs) He's still being uh, uh, chewed at by the dogs, the wild bulls are still around him. Uh, He's still exposed and abandoned and yet he knows that God's going to deliver him. And so he says, I'm going to pay my vow in the midst of the congregation, I'm going to praise you, and uh, I'm going to sing your praises uh, uh, with your people. Now, you see, the reason I wanted to take a minute at this point and just look through that psalm very quickly, uh, I wanted to remind you that here we have the commonest form in all the Psalter literature. The lament of the individual is the most common form in the psalms. And in that lament of the individual, this psalm has all the elements that such psalms have. It has the cry, it has the lament, it has the confession of trust, it has the vow of praise, it has the doxology at the end. In this psalm, as a matter of fact, these elements tend to be repeated You have, for example, two confessions of trust. You have uh, three sections of lamentation. So some of these elements are repeated in this particular psalm. But the elements are all there. Now, friends, listen. If Psalm 22, as a lament of the suffering servant of the Lord, so clearly and plainly refers to Jesus Christ not only in the cry at the beginning, but in the description that so well fits the crucifixion, uh, the the stripping away of his garments, casting lots on his garments, uh, all his bones being uh, exposed. uh, The the details are so appropriate uh, to the crucifixion. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, In this psalm that so clearly and plainly has a prophetic reference to Jesus Christ and to the crucifixion, we are dealing with a psalm characteristic of a category of the psalms. So if this psalm of the suffering servant of the Lord has Jesus ultimately in mind, I am uh, proposing so do the others, The reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen on me, the psalmist says. The suffering servant of the Lord suffers for God's sake. He suffers not because he's done evil things to his enemies, but he suffers simply because he is a righteous man. He's identified with the Lord. And so, if uh, the, the lament of the suffering servant in Psalm 22 so plainly is a messianic psalm, I say, so are the other psalms that have the same form. For they too are psalms of a righteous servant suffering not for his sin, but suffering because he has been the righteous servant of the Lord. All right? Now I'll try to extend that uh, after a bit and look at other kinds of psalms and uh, show that they too have messianic reference. So when you're all done, you come up with uh, quite a number of messianic psalms. When you get them all totaled up, uh, it comes to 150. But uh, we'll we'll have to look at that a little bit more. All right. Uh, So here, the the triumphant servant sings, in verse 22, uh, God's uh, song of praise. Well, then, the anointed king also sings. How about the royal psalms? Uh, Psalm uh, 2, referred to in the New Testament in reference to Jesus Christ, uh, where uh, we're told, uh, kiss the son lest he be angry, and uh, where the king is presented as the son of God set on the throne and given dominion. And uh, what about Psalm uh, 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. So royal psalms, which greatly exalt uh, the king as uh, a numinous figure who is the very son of God, who is God's victor over all the powers of darkness and evil, uh, who will reign in God's kingdom and who will establish God's kingdom as his anointed, Uh, These psalms, you see, obviously find their fulfillment ultimately not in David or Solomon, but in Jesus Christ. Now, it's sometimes said by some exegetes that this or that psalm uh, refers exclusively to Jesus Christ and has no reference to uh, uh, kingship in Israel uh, because uh, deity is is, uh, uh, ascribed uh, to the the (laughs) Son, as in Psalm 2 or Psalm 110. Well, of course that's true. Of course it's true that uh, the king of Israel was not looked at as divine. And yet, the concept of kingship, of God's anointed, of the one who was God's chosen, God's elect servant, uh, that is a a concept of tremendous power and glory. And you see the transition, I already pointed it out to you, in the prophecy of Zechariah. When the least inhabitant of Israel will be like King David, then who will King David be like? He'll be like the angel of the Lord. Well, you see, there's the concept of kingship, but the concept of kingship put into eschatological perspective. And, of course, that all reads in terms of the promise that's given to David, that of his seed God will set upon the throne and his kingdom will be forever. There is an eternal kingdom, ultimately, that's promised to the son of David. And, therefore, kingship in Israel has this eschatological perspective, this depth, this reference forward to the great day of fulfillment when the real, the final, the full king will come. And so we have in these, uh, in these royal psalms also uh, the reference to the anointed king, and he is the one who, who sings uh, in, in the psalms. Uh, he is the one who is uh, really uh, the, the singer. Uh, <clears throat> and now uh, let me uh, direct you to another passage. Uh, This is uh, going over this pretty quickly, but look over in Romans, in the 15th chapter. Romans, chapter 15. Let me read from verse 7. Wherefore, receive ye one another, even as Christ also received you, to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has been made a minister of the circumcision, for the truth of God that he might confirm the promises given to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, when he says Christ has been made a minister of the circumcision, there's a question as to whether the uh, genitive is uh, objective or subjective. Is he a minister who serves the circumcision or is he a minister who is one of the circumcision? See? A minister of the circumcision. Does does circumcision describe him, or does it describe those to whom he ministers? Now, it's often taken that that it describes those who he ministers. Jesus Christ will serve Israel. Uh, I think, however, that that doesn't hold up for a good exegesis of this passage, uh, because uh, he is said to be a minister of the circumcision, for the truth of God, that he might confirm the promises. Now, of course, the promises are made to Israel. But the promises also require of Israel their covenantal obedience. Isn't that true? And uh, for the promises to be fulfilled, uh, Israel should keep God's covenant. And Israel doesn't do it. So Jesus is a minister of the circumcision. That is to say, Jesus fulfills the ministry of the circumcision for the truth of God. He fulfills the ministry of the circumcision so that the truth of God might be established. And what what is the establishment of the truth of God? What what brings about the realization of the promises why well, it's done by Jesus Christ Paul says that the gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written you see it's God's, is what was the promise to Abraham from the very beginning that in him and in his seed should all the nations of the earth be blessed so there's that great blessing that's to come through the seed of Abraham you know i started that old testament survey with the exodus uh, I could have started, of course, uh, with the book of Genesis and with the call of Abraham. And the promise from the very beginning is that in the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And now Paul says that promise is fulfilled. The Gentiles are receiving the blessing, the Gentiles are receiving the gospel. And how can the Gentiles receive the gospel? Well, because Jesus has fulfilled the ministry of the circumcision, and therefore he has become the heir of the promises of God. He's received the promises. Uh, you see, uh, to which of the promises of God is Jesus Christ heir? Is he uh, heir to the promise that was made uh, uh, when God cursed the serpent in the garden? Uh, that uh, uh, that uh, the son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, but that uh, uh, the son of the woman uh, would also... Uh, uh, The son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, but in so doing, uh, that uh, uh, his heel would be bruised. That is to say, he would suffer as he crushed the head of the the snake. Uh, Is Christ the heir of that promise, (laughs) that the head of the serpent would be crushed? Well, he is, isn't he? Uh, Is Christ the heir of the promise to Abraham? Is he Abraham's seed, who inherits the promise made to Abraham, that in him all the nations of the earth be blessed? Yes, he inherits that promise. Is he the heir of the promise made to David, Uh, that uh, uh, his kingdom would be forever. Uh, Yes, he is. Uh, Is there any promise of which Jesus is not the heir? Uh, No, none. (laughs) He he inherits them all. Okay. Uh, Now, if Christ is heir of all the promises, and if you are united to Jesus Christ in your salvation, then of how many of the promises of God are you an heir? Seems that way, doesn't it? Uh, which is why uh, Paul says uh, uh, what he does here, and what he also uh, says in Galatians. When he says, uh, verse twenty-eight of Galatians three, there can be neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. See what he says. If you're in Christ, you're the seed of Abraham. Why? Why because Christ is the seed of Abraham. Uh, you receive the promise given to Abraham. And he's, those, he's acutely aware of the fact that he's writing to Gentiles, to those that were far off, to those that had no place. But now they have received the promises of God and Jesus Christ. So the song uh, of, uh, of praise to God will now rise uh, to the Gentiles, uh, from the Gentiles, in Romans 15. Look at that next verse, verse 9, Romans 15:9, That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore will I give praise unto thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. Now my question is this. Who is the I, in the quotation that the Apostle Paul gives there in verse 9. Uh, he, he's quoting uh, from uh, Psalm 18, verse 49, a psalm that's also included in, in Second Samuel. Therefore will I give praise to thee among the Gentiles. Who's the I who will give praise to God among the Gentiles? Well, uh, don't be afraid if you say it. Uh, Pretty obvious what the answer's got to be. Of course, it's got to be Jesus. Because he's the minister of the circumcision through whom these promises have been fulfilled. The promises that the Gentiles will inherit. And Paul says, that's why he says, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. Because he's inherited the promises for the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles have become Abraham's seed. In him, the blessing goes to the Gentiles. And and therefore, he says, therefore will I give praise to thee among the Gentiles. And the one who gives praise is the very Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. So here is the song of the true Son of God, who is the the King of the nations, who now sings among the Gentiles. Uh, In this little uh, drawing on the overhead Uh, I've uh, uh, quoted uh, from Isaiah 66, which speaks of the praise of the Gentiles in the latter days, and from Psalm 96.3, which speaks of uh, uh, praising God among the nations, glorifying God among the nations, because I wanted to stress something that is very uh, strong in the Psalms. Uh, in uh, the edition of the Pauline Eschatology by Gerhardus Voss, uh, there is a final chapter that's been added on uh, the Psalms, the the witness of the Psalms to Christ. It's It's a magnificent chapter. And in that chapter, Voss points out that in the Psalms, there is a characteristic doxology of praise to God in which the Gentiles are called to join. Praise him, all ye peoples. Glorify his name, all ye nations. You see, Israel is pictured as glorifying God in Mount Zion, lifting up his name, adoring him, praising him. And then they address the nations and they say, Come and join us in that praise. And the book of Isaiah comes to a thundering climax on that very theme, that those who were outcasts and exiles come trooping in. Jeremiah says the same thing that Edom and Moab, there's a remnant of Edom and of Moab that join with the remnant of the people of God. Yesterday I mentioned the passage in Isaiah 19, you know, speaking of Egypt and Assyria. Well, all the Gentiles, the remnant of the Gentiles, they too come in with the remnant of Israel into the fullness of the people of God. And that's Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11 where he talks about the remnant and the fullness. Uh, they come in the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of Israel. Uh, they are drawn together. Now, you see, that's the Old Testament concept of mission. God is glorified. God is adored. The Psalms sing his praises. But the Psalms are missionary Psalms because they call to the nations to join in the praises of the people of God. And that's doxological evangelism, see? So... <clears throat> Everybody has a book on evangelism, friendship, evangelism, evangelism, explosion, hospitality, evangelism, personal evangelism, mass evangelism. Well, there still needs to be written a good book on doxological evangelism. Now, nobody would buy it because nobody would know what doxological evangelism means, but uh, that 's all right uh, you still need we still need one <laughs> because you see uh, isn 't it a good thing that uh, Billy Graham, in his campaigns uh, does not uh, uh, many as have been the people that have made a profession of Christ to the tune of just as I am without one plea. But nevertheless, uh, the theme hymn of his campaigns is How Great Thou Art. <laughs> and that was a good choice of a hymn, How Great Thou Art. For you see, it's as we see the greatness and the glory of the sovereign God that we're called to come and worship him. The wonder of his grace, the power of his salvation, adore his name. That's the Psalms. Now, you see, in the New Testament, uh, we're told to go into all the nations. And there, evangelism is centrifugal, from the center out. But in the Old Testament, evangelism is centripetal, from the outside in. (laughs) Uh, God's name is lifted up, and the Gentiles are called to come streaming in, to come trooping into Jerusalem and praise his name with us. Now, God didn't really reverse his field. Something happened. What happened was, as Jesus told the woman by the well in Samaria, that the time had come when Jerusalem, and of course, Gerizim wasn't the center for worshiping God, but strangely enough, neither was Jerusalem, because the time had come that Jesus Christ had fulfilled it. Uh, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And spirit there means the Holy Spirit, and truth there means Jesus Christ. Worshiping him in the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you see, what Jesus is saying is something has happened. The temple has been fulfilled. Uh, He talks to the woman in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. In the second chapter of the Gospel of John, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I would raise it up. And he's talking about his own body. Uh, so why don't you worship in Jerusalem anymore, the physical geographical Jerusalem? Why, because the temple has been fulfilled. Jesus Christ is the temple. And the Jerusalem to which we go now is the heavenly Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The uh, Jerusalem mentioned in, Psalm, in uh, Hebrews 12, uh, where uh, we are told that we come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion... The heavenly Jerusalem. We can, see, what happened was God took Jerusalem up to heaven. Uh, and uh, uh, it'll, it'll come down again when Jesus comes. But God took Jerusalem up to heaven, and that's why Paul and Galatians can call Jerusalem an Arab city. No wonder they tried to stone him. Uh, But you you see what what he's saying. Uh, He's saying that here is the true Jerusalem that is above, and here Jesus Christ is, leading the songs of the people of God. My friends, Jesus Christ is the heavenly choir master. Jesus Christ is the sweet singer of Israel. Uh, Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills the role of David. What a wonderful man David was. (laughs) Uh, A king, a warrior, but also a poet. Uh, but above all, a worshiper of God. And you see, as David rejoices in the praises of God, uh, Jesus Christ is the one who rejoices. He is the one who sings praise to God. And the wonderful thing is he sings in the midst of the congregation, but he also sings the missionary chant that goes out to the nations. Jesus Christ sings among the Gentiles the praises of God. And the Gentiles are called to join with Jesus Christ in singing the praises of the Father above, the Father who sent his only begotten Son into the world. Now, uh, you know, I'm not saying that doxological evangelism means that the best way to do personal witness is to hum a hymn. Uh, That might not be a bad idea, except if I tried it, it would be, but uh, some of you can carry a tune. And uh, you could hum a hymn and uh, People might say, well, what's that you're humming? I've heard it somewhere. And then you could tell them. Well, there's a worse way to bear witness than that. That's not bad. But what I'm saying is there's got to be that hymn in your heart. If you're not praising God in your heart, you're not prepared to witness to others. Uh, We don't witness, you know, from a defeatist posture that at last you've got me cornered, and now that you mention it, I have to admit I am a Christian. Uh, You know, that's not the approach. The approach is we're so full of praise to God for what he's done for us that we want to tell others of the glory of God and in that way bear witness to others. Uh, uh, Well, just uh, think about that. I... uh, I'm not such a great singer. See, I, I have to admit that. My wife is, uh, is uh, quite an accomplished singer. She was a music major, a soloist in the Wheaton Glee Club, all that kind of thing, led choirs and all that. So she, she's a good singer, but, uh, but I'm not. And, uh, well, she stuck it out for, uh, I thought she was going to really make it, but she stuck it out for, uh, oh, I think about uh, 35 years or so. And uh, then it got too much for her one night. And uh, we were over here in Hatboro singing a a hymn together in the evening service. And we were sharing a hymn book. And all of a sudden, she couldn't stand it one more minute. And she broke up into convulsions of laughter. She she just began to laugh, you know. And people looked at her to know what she was laughing about. And, of course, the people near enough, I guess they knew what she was laughing about. I was trying to sing the bass, you see. And uh, since I can't even carry the tune in the melody, it's hopeless when you get down in the bass. Uh, but I- I'll give this to her, you know. For about 35 years or so, she sang with me without everyone's laughing. And I think that's a pretty good record. Now, I-, I don't know how Peter sounded when he sang in the upper room with Jesus, you know. Maybe Peter didn't have a very good voice either. I I don't know. Uh, but, but, But Jesus sang with Peter, and he sang with James and John, and he sings in the midst of the congregation today. And Jesus Christ is the singing Savior, and you need to realize that, and realize the wonder of singing praise with Jesus. And who will lead our praise when we get to glory? Jesus will. And who is the one who sings even now among the nations of the earth, bringing the praises to God from every tongue and people and nation? Uh, What a wonderful thing it is that right here at Westminster and right here in this room, there are so many different parts of the world represented, so many different nations where Jesus Christ is praised today because he is the Savior, the only Savior for the whole world. And he sings the praises of the Father. What a wonderful, praising Savior we have. So when we come to the, any psalm that we sing, we know that we sing it to Jesus. <clears throat> well, it's obvious, isn't it, that there's the other side of the picture, that we not only sing with Jesus, but we sing to Jesus. And here I can be very concise, because you understand this, I think, very well. In the Psalms, we have both descriptive and declarative praise. Descriptive praise tells what God is like. It talks about his attributes. Declarative praise tells us what God has done. It tells about his mighty works. And the Psalms are always doing one or the other. They're either praising God's name, that is, uh, adoring him descriptively, Or else they're praising God's deeds, that is, uh, adoring him in terms of his great works of salvation. And we sing the mighty works of God in both of those categories. Think first about praising his mighty works. Uh, We praise the Lord, our maker, in terms of his wisdom and his power, the glory of the mountains, the towering clouds. We praise God, our ruler, because his rule establishes the earth. And his judgment brings history to its conclusion. The Psalms are full of statements about the sovereign providence of the Almighty God. But we praise him not only as our maker and our ruler, but we praise him most especially as our Savior. Uh, This is the song of Moses, uh, going back to the great deliverance, uh, the deliverance from the Red Sea. Uh, There's that cry that... uh, Uh, Israel makes as they're brought out, the sea has returned over their enemies, and they sing, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Now, uh, that that cry, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. That's repeated, you know, in Psalm 118, the psalm that Jesus sang most likely in the upper room, uh, the psalm that was used uh, by the crowds as they cried Hosanna as Jesus came in the triumphal entry. And uh, that psalm is repeated also in the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, where in the 12th chapter, in the 2nd verse in that passage that speaks of drawing water from the wells of salvation. Uh, it is this cry of praise to God. And God is our Savior, and the song of Moses becomes the song of the Lamb. You know, in the Psalms, there's that uh, phrase that's used, the new song, sing a new song to the Lord, Psalm 96. And uh, that new song becomes prophetic. It speaks, you see, of a fresh song, of a song that will again celebrate the great work of God in the latter days. And it's interesting that uh, the kingdom proclamation of John the Baptist and of Jesus, that kingdom proclamation has its background in the prophecy of Isaiah especially, but also in the Psalms, because the Psalms say that God is coming to rule, God is coming to overcome all injustice and to establish his rule in all the earth. And it is this song of the Psalms that celebrates the the great saving work that God is going to do. And uh, therefore, uh, we have the celebration of the good news that's to be proclaimed upon the mountains of the coming of the Lord, uh, the resurrection at the end of Psalm 16, Uh, on which Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, uh, the ascension, as you find it in Psalm 24, uh, where you see Jesus uh, both as the uh, uh, pure and spotless worshiper who can ascend into God's holy hill, and also as the triumphant king who comes back from battle victorious. Uh, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Uh, What a psalm for the triumphant ascension of Jesus Christ, the King of glory, who comes back in victory. And he it is, of course, uh, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul into vanity nor sworn deceitfully. Uh, The resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ as the one in whom we find our refuge and trust. There are those psalms that are psalms of refuge, Psalm 11, Psalm 7. Uh, quite a number of other psalms, uh, which speak of uh, a place of refuge. Remember, in the Old Testament, a man guilty of uh, uh, homicide, who was uh, where it was unintentional. He didn't try. He didn't commit murder, but it was an unintentional homicide. Uh, to avoid the vengeance of the clan of the man that he'd killed, uh, he could flee to a city of refuge. And remember, Jerusalem was the center city of refuge. And you could go to the temple and lay hold on the horns of the altar, which meant you were putting your case in the hands of God. Remember how Joab did that, and it didn't help him much with Solomon, but uh, uh, remember that that picture that you could flee and... uh, Go to God for refuge. Well, now, many of the Psalms are Psalms in that situation. Not that the Psalmist necessarily had literally run to lay hold on the horns of the altar, but in figure, in concept, that's what's going on. Incidentally, some of those Psalms are Psalms which protest so much the innocence and the righteousness of the Psalmist. And this has been a difficulty for many people. Why does the Psalmist say he's so righteous? Well, in the context of those psalms, he's saying, I'm innocent. I'm not guilty of the crimes they're accusing me of. My enemies are accusing me of robbery and stealing and murder and so on. I haven't done these things. I'm innocent. And I'm taking my case to God. Lord, you judge. You be my judge. So he comes to God as his refuge. He flees to the place of refuge and puts his case in the hands of God. And you see, uh, Jesus does that, doesn't he? He doesn't avenge himself. He submits his uh, case to God, and he knows that God will avenge. Uh, God will be the just God uh, in whom he can trust. So Jesus uh, presents himself to us also in this way. But here, I'm thinking more particularly of the Lord as our Savior, the Lord as our refuge, the fact that we can go to Jesus Christ ourselves and find our refuge in him. So we can sing the mighty works of God and the mighty works of God as they're find, found in Jesus Christ, and we can sing the glorious name of God as Jesus fulfills that name. Uh, we, God proclaims His holy name to His people, and uh, uh, God uh, sing uh, Christ uh, gives to us the psalms that we might sing to the glory uh, of uh, His name. Uh, Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father, hallowed be thy name. And we hallow the name of God in the name of Jesus, because at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess uh, to the glory of God the Father. You know, there's a marvelous verse in uh, 1 Peter, <clears throat> very remarkable verse, in 1 Peter three fourteen. 14. Uh, Peter writes, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed are ye. And fear not their fear, neither be ye troubled, but sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. Now, uh, the reference there, uh, Peter is alluding, he's even quoting, from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. And when you go back to Isaiah eight twelve, you find that Isaiah is saying, Uh, Don't fear their fear, don't fear their dread. Say not a conspiracy concerning all whereof the people shall say a conspiracy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be in dread thereof. The Lord of hosts, him shall you sanctify, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now Peter quotes that. He says, Fear not their fear, Uh, Neither be troubled. And there he's just following the the Septuagint. Uh, But he says, And sanctify in your hearts the Lord. And he's still quoting from Isaiah. See, sanctify the Lord. Let him be your dread. And then he adds in the Greek, Sanctify the Lord, the Christ. Now, I don't know if you, if you see what an amazing confession of Christ's deity that is. See, hallow Him. How do you sanctify the Lord? Well, you know, the Lord sanctifies us by making us holy. But we don't sanctify the Lord by making Him holy. He's already holy. Uh, how do we sanctify God? Well, we sanctify Him by acknowledging His holiness, don't we? And Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name. And what do we do when we pray that? Why, we declare that God is God. And we're really praying, Lord, be yourself. Be what you are. Sanctify your own name. Be the holy God that you are. Now, Isaiah is saying, don't be afraid of what the people are afraid of. Don't be afraid of the idols. But sanctify in your hearts the Lord. That is, acknowledge God to be God in your hearts. And then you won't be afraid of them. Fear Him. Acknowledge Him to be God. Sanctify Him as God. And now Peter says, do that. Don't fear their fear. Sanctify the Lord. And then he says, the Lord, the Christ. That's an amazing statement. You see, he takes the sanctification of the living God, that we hallow Him as God, and then he says, that Lord, that God is Christ. Amazing, amazing. You know, Peter's, this is Simon Peter. This is, this is the man that uh, had Jesus in his fishing boat, right? Uh, this is the man who's uh, had Jesus uh, in, in the house when his mother-in-law was sick, you know, and Jesus healed her and she served him at dinner. And there was Jesus sitting with Peter and Peter with Jesus. And now Peter says, acknowledge, acknowledge him to be God in your hearts. Amazing. See, we hallow the name of God in Jesus Christ. For he is God the Son. The seeking God's face. The, uh, the whole structure of the Psalms, uh, Psalm 63, 2 and 3, for example, where we seek the face of God, all finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the very image of God. And uh, delighting in God's beauty, uh, Psalm ninety. Uh, that uh, worshippers delight in the fullness of the beauty of God, which is uh, all through the Psalms. The psalmist hunger and thirst for God. And here in this great psalm, which is ascribed to Moses, the man of God, you find in uh, verse 17, Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. And uh, the term that's used for beauty there is one of a number of concepts and terms that are used for beauty in the Old Testament. Uh, there are those terms which describe the beauty of majesty, like the beauty of the uh, cloud over the tabernacle, uh, the, the richness and the glory and the majesty of God. Uh, uh, that term's used in Psalm 96.6 and uh, Isaiah 28.5. Uh, there are terms which are used to describe the beauty of wisdom, the beauty of design. Uh, that that the strange little drawing with the colored dots in it, that's supposed to be the uh, breastplate of the high priest that had 12 uh, jewel stones, the 12 gemstones with the names of the tribes of Israel. Dodd wore the names of his people on his heart. But that beautiful uh, weaving, uh, woven with linen, you know, and uh, cut gems and all the rich elaboration of the dress of the priests in the Old Testament. The beauty of holiness, as it's called, holy array. Uh, That beauty of design, that beauty of uh, elaborate uh, development of the arts uh, in in, uh, the Old Testament tabernacle. Uh, That beauty of God, that beauty is also ascribed to God. And uh, uh, then, it's, it, incidentally, that, uh, that term for beauty in that sense is used right in this psalm, in verse 16. And then finally, there's the, the beauty of delight. And that's uh, the beauty of loveliness. It's used for uh, the beauty of a woman or the handsomeness of a man. And that beauty, that loveliness of grace, is also ascribed to God. And that's the, verb, uh, that's the noun that's used here. Let the beauty of the Lord our God, let the grace, the loveliness of the Lord our God be upon us. Lord, establish your loveliness, your beauty upon us uh, to refresh us and satisfy us. The psalm of Moses, the man of God in the wilderness, leading a generation that was going to die in the wilderness, but now he prays for the blessing of God upon their children. And uh, even upon them, he says, let the beauty, your loveliness, your grace be upon us as we go on in this uh, wilderness pilgrimage. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing uh, to consider that uh, uh, God is not only the God of truth, so that uh, all truth is uh, in him. Uh, he's not only the God of uh, uh, therefore, of our wisdom and of our understanding. And not only the God of power, who has all power in him, but he is the God also of the aesthetic dimension. And it's characteristic of aesthetics that they always have an allusive quality. That is, uh, aesthetics always require more than one perspective, uh, if I may say that with apologies to Vern Poitras, who's uh, sort of... Uh, some of you know he's got a patent on perspectivalism, but uh, the, uh, I'll, I'll infringe it briefly. Uh, but you see, it is true that, that the perspective, the aesthetic perspective, always uh, sees things from more than one angle. Uh, uh, you know, what makes the leap of a deer beautiful is not just that it's effective locomotion. Uh, it's that it's effective effect of locomotion with something else beside. <laughs> uh, there's a kind of, uh, we might describe it as a grace or a symmetry or this or that or something else, but it's, it's something extra. It's like another dimension that, that arouses the aesthetic appreciation, the elusiveness within it. Uh, same thing uh, uh, in, in poetry. Uh, it's, uh, it's not just that a statement is made but it's made in a way that uh, involves another dimension, maybe an allusion within the statement, Uh, maybe uh, another perspective that is built into it. Oh, it may be a relatively simple thing, uh, just rhyme in the convention of English poetry. Uh, The fact that it not only says it, but says it with a rhyme, gives it that extra dimension, you know or it not only says it, but uh, uh, says it uh, with a cadence, uh, or it says it with uh, a repetition of some sort. Hebrew poetry is so translatable because it's not based on rhyme, but based on uh, a rep- repetitive structure. So uh, all, all the whole realm of aesthetics uh, has elusiveness. Now, you see, I would say, friends, that just as there... As God is the source of truth and God is the source of morality, uh, also God is the source of beauty. Why? Why, because it's the richness of the divine being that lies behind that which we appreciate when we see things from more than one perspective. Uh, The joy of allusiveness in aesthetics is a joy in the richness of God's revelation. And these terms for beauty that you find in the Psalms, and the very fact that the Psalms are written in poetry, the very fact that there is this beauty in the Psalms, the grandeur, the glory of them, the, that which satisfies the aesthetic dimension. That's part of a revelation of the richness of the wonder and glory of God. And my friends, all of that you find in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who is given to, who gives to us the divine majesty... Uh, The glory that shone on the Mount of Transfiguration shone first from the face of Jesus Christ and then from his shining garments. The majesty of God, the richness of the divine majesty is given to us in Jesus Christ. And the wisdom of God is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's in Jesus Christ that we see God's design. Uh, We see that wisdom which is foolishness to men, but which is uh, God's wisdom for our salvation and uh, the delight of God, the loveliness of his grace, is found in Jesus Christ. For just as he's made hideous in the agony of his suffering, uh, he is altogether lovely to our eyes. Uh, he is the one who is the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon. Uh, he is the one who satisfies us in the profoundest level uh, that our soul might be delighted by his grace. And, uh, Uh, The the Song of Solomon surely does uh, present uh, married love, but it uh, presents love in a context uh, of uh, the love of the king, uh, the one who is the beloved of the king. And the one who is the beloved of the king also in the Psalms uh, is seen in the perspective uh, where the king is identified with the royal messiah, uh, the one who uh, loves his people, and the one who shows his love uh, toward the beloved uh, who is uh, his heart's desire. So it is not an accident that Jesus Christ is presented uh, in the New Testament as the bridegroom, uh, as the one who loves the church and gave himself for it. He is the royal messiah, and he as the royal messiah has his bride uh, who is uh, uh, clothed in loveliness and beauty. So we adore Jesus Christ in the loveliness of his grace and rest in his love. Uh, Jesus Christ is the singer of the Psalms, and Jesus Christ is the one to whom we sing in the Psalms. So we are to present Jesus Christ from the Psalms as the one uh, who is the Savior uh, of his people, the Lord and the Servant.